This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> are you leaving or are you on your way back home? Either way, we want to be there. Doesn't matter how much baggage you claim. Give us a time and date. Terminal and gate. We want to send you off in style. We want to welcome you back home. Tell us all about it. Were you scared or was it fine? Malcorn. Welcome to Do You Need a Ride? This is Chris Fairbanks. And this is Karen Kilgara. I, uh, hello, Karen. Oh, hello, Chris. I, uh, did a, uh, a taping for a commercial today. And, oh. uh, I, I had to do it a second time in Spanish. And, uh, I, yeah, I'm just letting you know I am bilingual. I, I, it took me four hours though. I had to listen to it. I had to dictate it, uh, translate it because it wasn't provided oddly. So I had to translate (laughs) the English and it felt so weird doing the accent. Like I learned it in college, but it felt very strange, uh, to do a Spanish accent. Am I weird for? No, no, I think by we, that? My, our French teacher in high school used to get mad at us all the time because she would be like, répondez s'il vous plaît. And she'd be saying shit, shit like that. And we'd always be like, you know, whatever. Je m'appelle Karen. Like we would not do French accents. We would, we all refused to even, especially not like do the R thing or the throat thing, but just like we would all keep our California accents while right. we were doing it. I guess it felt like I was doing an accent. Like when I do the reggae stuff, it seemed like I was comedically, it seemed like someone would be offended if they walked in sure. while I was doing I, But I'm speaking, I'm speaking Spanish though. Uh, it's, it was so, because fu- it would go back, it was for the California lottery. So as soon as oh. it got to that, uh, you know, I'd go California lottery and then I'd drop the accent. I don't know. It was very strange. Let's hear it. Let, just give us a sampling. Oh, God, I didn't memorize it. Okay, wait. I will. Here we go. And we are on in... In, in five, four, three, two, and... I wasn't ready. Here we go. 
air. I'm going to count you back in. You don't do the last two numbers. In five, four, three. Porque siente también reventar barbujas de plástico. Por la misma razón que jugamos Scratchers de California Lottery. Ponelo un poco de juego a tu día. Tu día. Tu día. Oh, I hope I didn't do it like that on the recording. I think I said do tia, which means something about your aunt. Oh, no. Uh, You're supposed to be saying, are you saying today? Today. Yes, you're right. Thank you. I mean, are French and Spanish that similar to where you just No, I'm smart. It's a context clue. (laughs) You know what I mean? No, don't be crazy. The reason I didn't do that well is because I didn't put on my father's glasses. I I actually have trouble (laughs) reading. Oh, there there they are. There they are. Yeah. (laughs) I have I've grown blind during this, uh, but that's going to stick with me. Yeah. Por la misma razón que jugamos. Gamos, Scratchers Day, California Lottery. That's how I was doing it, because I'm not going to go. I'm not going to add the accent to California Lottery. No, you shouldn't. And I think that's how many people, many Californians, many native Spanish speakers. Also, because they are bilingual, that's how they do. I always hear like the girls talking to each other where they're speaking in Spanish so that other people can't hear them. But then they're like, you know, Twitter or they'll say a thing that's right american or anglicized perfect exactly this is a problematic conversation let's introduce our guest it maybe is but but the reason i brought it up is i was worried that i did the uh the lottery california line but i didn't do the accent so i shouldn't have even brought it up i'm fine i didn't do anything wrong that's the way that's the way i hear people do it on the radio when they're speaking spanish but then they say the thing in English. They, right. they do it. I In my mind, I did it problematically, but I think I did it correctly. I'm, I just had to talk through it at a strange time at the beginning of our podcast. And I hope that's OK. Look, this is where it's the first four minutes of the podcast where we bring our worst problems. Right. And then we pull our guest into those problems are, and say, come and solve these for us, please. Are you sure we shouldn't change the name of the podcast to off on the wrong foot? <laughs> I th- it's got a nice ring to it and it makes perfect sense yeah and we have a guest today karen we certainly do and i am holding her book i i it's funny why am i holding it up there's no tv cameras but look it's, at do you have it's it beautiful it's, it's beautiful oh, yes i got sent one very early because i'm friends with our guest well, IRL. Since you're such good friends, I will do let you do the honors of introducing her. Okay, back all the way off, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Today, our guest, <laughs> our guest is a soup is a a multi hyphenate, and I and you can tell me, Mandy, if I get the order wrong. But I would say she is a producer. She is a photographer. Photographer. She is a booker extraordinaire. She is a helper of artists around the world <laughs> and fucked up stand up comics who can't get their shit together. <laughs> She's a facilitator of the arts. Her name is Mandy Johnson. And a well, writer. Um, Hi, guys. And a writer of books. And yeah. a writer of books. A curator of books <laughs> and writing. Mandy it's Johnson. Mandy Johnson. <laughs> I didn't back Ooh. off. I didn't back no, off. No, it's perfect. It's <laughs> together. Hi, Yay, Mandy. <laughs> That's your official introduction. 
<laughs> That's so many additional multi-hyphens. I'm going to keep all of them, Karen. G- good. You should. I think for me, I know you best as the person who, when I started doing stand-up again and, and knew it was a bad idea. It was definitely I was, not a bad idea. It was not a bad idea. Not this, not this most recent time, but the first time when I was doing guitar also comedy. not a bad idea. Yeah, that was great. Everyone likes it. It, thank you. But it, for me personally, just my personal experience was humiliation. And um, and also there was a lot of tech involved that I couldn't. There's a lot of in, <laughs> things that were involved I couldn't handle. Right. And when I did Super Serious, well, and when I met Mandy the first time, it was just like, I got you. Here's this parking spot for I'll, I'll meet you at the door. It was like she knew exactly how high maintenance I was and how to get me into that show so that I wouldn't like completely cave in inside before I got on stage. Right. And she is perfect at doing it. She gives everybody exactly what they need or don't need. It's uh, it's makes all the difference in the world. Oh, it's so sweet. We were so excited when Karen, Karen, when you came back to comedy. And I think <laughs> at the time I told you that producers in the independent comedy scene in Los Angeles were like, oh, my God, Karen Kilgariff is doing shows again. This is so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> that's true truly yeah. how me and Joel felt we're like oh this is so exciting we've always wanted to have her on and so when you Thank came into you. our show we were so pumped I was so excited about it so it felt a little bit like those dreams you have um when you're in your late 30s early 40s where you're back in high school but you're in your <laughs> late 30s early 40s where you're just like I shouldn't be here why am I taking this math test <laughs> only it was my real life that's uh, how it felt yeah that's my reoccurring nightmare is yeah. some Billy Madison situation where I have to quit. I have to cancel all my gigs. I have to move out of my apartment. There's so much high school I missed. And I have to go back because yeah. of a class I forgot about. Not a, I didn't just go miss the test at the end. I absolutely forgot about my seventh period algebra and I have to relearn and redo it. It's a reoccurring you, nightmare. I love and that you tell night- you try to tell people. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I love this nightmare. You're in your head. You're like, I'm a successful comedian, but I still need to go back and get my high school diploma. Better get it. Right. Why? What exactly? (laughs) I don't know. It's some honor thing. Like, I have to go do this. What I have framed and, of course, hung in my living room, this diploma, prior to my college degree, (laughs) is a farce. I got it. I lied. I have to go back. I I did that a lot with, um, I would go back to play on my old softball team but it was of course all new young people and I I would keep looking at people and going I wasn't even that good when I did it why am I here and I'd be like listen to me I'm 42 or whatever I was at the time where I'm just like trying to explain to the other adults at the school like please I can't put this uniform on please don't make me do this yeah that's the same dream what does it mean we need a dream analyzer Mandy. Oh, that's the other hyphenate. Yeah, Dream yeah. Analyzer. Okay. Mandy. Analyze it's this. Probably just, it's probably just some form of anxiety. I think about that's like every, all of my about dreams. Like not yeah. being good enough, not succeeding, not completing whatever you set out to complete. I, my reoccurring things are just um, versions of whatever my job is at the time that I just mm-hmm. work. So like when I cocktailed in college, I would just dream that I cocktailed the whole night. And so I'd wake Ugh. up and I wouldn't feel like I ever went to sleep. And when we were at like <laughs> festivals, I would often dream of working the festival the whole night. 
and then get up and have to do a whole other day of festivals. <laughs> oh, that yeah, that's what I hate. They're kind of realistic. Like that's that that could possibly happen. So it's so disappointing for that to be a dream. Remember yeah. the it, action, the weird things, even being chased or falling. I don't dream those things anymore. They're just realistic where I'm screwing up an appointment or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. I, and in the pandemic, they've just been like versions of masked or like I'm the only masked person and everyone else isn't. Or I've forgotten my mask mm-hmm. in yeah. some kind of very important, crazy way. And therefore, I have put everyone who lives with me at risk and like everyone I love somehow. <laughs> they, they've just all been like weird versions of like how I'm going to somehow contract COVID and then give it to everybody I love. Which is yeah. the most realistic. Then that day, that exact <laughs> thing happens. It's just not scary because you're awake and you know how to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. I had a dream the other night that I everything that it wasn't stressful. It wasn't anything. It was just no matter what anyone said to me in the dream, I'd go, that's OK. <laughs> I just kept saying that over and over. And when I woke up, I was like, this is I think this was a good dream. I think this is like this is the thing to focus on is it doesn't most things don't matter. They yeah, are I think okay. your subconscious okay. was correct. Everything is yeah. everything's fine. It's going to be fine. Eventually, everything will be fine. Yes, yeah. exactly. I uh, I this is very specific and we don't have to talk about dreams the whole time. But you are a dream analyzer. Mandy. <laughs> so it, it is how I make all of my money. So you, yeah, that and the tarot cards. So yeah. I I have been doing this thing where I when I wake up, there is a moment I'm realizing now because I've been dreaming during this whole past year. There's a moment <laughs> where you, I'm sorry, awake. To clarify, did you not before? I did not before. OK, okay you did. You are okay. very rarely. And it okay. might have to do with the fact that I was drinking more. <laughs> sure. I think it Definitely. does. And I not so much that I, I just all of a sudden I'm dreaming more and it is proportionate to me not ever going out or having drinks. Uh, it's a weird, subtle way of admitting I had a problem or finding out right now in this moment. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I went wait. lots of handle all at once, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and that's I haven't even gotten to the dream. This is where it gets, well, boring. I <laughs> I I wake up and I keep my eyes shut, but I know I'm awake, but I'm not quite because I'm dreaming about the alarm. And I dream convince I convince myself in a dream state that time is a malleable thing and and clocks are not as we know them. I can't I'm not sure how I do this, but I convince myself that the clock is is behind 12 hours or something and while i sleep i will push i actually have this decision and i push snooze and i miss or i turn it off and then i just don't wake up it's actually become a problem where i sleep while i'm asleep convince myself it's not happening i don't just sleep through an alarm like people do that do you ever have it where i have it sometimes where i'm aware in the dream i'm aware that i'm dreaming I'm aware right. that I'm asleep. I'm aware and I am that too. everything is a dream. Right. But this is I'm... called lucid dreaming. Oh, lucid I'll dreaming. Tell you your Thank business, you. Mandy. Thank but... you so much, Karen. Right. I'm Come learning on. so much today. <laughs> Not this yeah, REM maybe, shit. So maybe that's what you're doing is like, and then you can kind of be like, and then you're like, oh, I can kind of control this. Mm-hmm. Right. I think and I have special <laughs> powers. That That's exactly it. I'm lucid dreaming. 
I know yeah. I'm I know I'm laying in bed. I know I'm in my house. I know the alarm is about to go off, but I don't want to open my eyes to see what time it is. So rather than open my eyes and become fully awake, I dream that it's Three hours earlier. That's basically what, what time I, is this I, normally at? Like, what time is your? Oh alarm yeah, so and far? it will be like if it's it's like right before the alarm goes off. My my brain knows when the alarm's going off, but and is I wake it like up. really early in the morning? Like, do you get up really early, or like is it like more not, than? I mean, like, I guess you I'm just doesn't curious. look at that Who, hair. I mean, I There's no way alarm, he gets up early. It's funny. The only days I wake up at six thirty are the days I go skateboarding with my seven a.m. skateboard crew, which is. Like high I school. I feel like that's an oxymoron of a 7 a.m. skateboard crew. I we got to get there before, before Costco the opens and then all the cars come and then it's day. <laughs> we have to get there before the cars. And everyone I skate with has a day job. They're firemen and stuff. So we have to do it in the wow, morning. Wow, what a brag. They're, yeah, firemen. I know firemen. My nephew's a fireman. My brother in law's a fireman. <laughs> How many firemen do you guys know? Karen's father, fireman. Uh, and about a hundred other people in my family. <laughs> really? I, I, I don't. I think I had a nephew once who wanted to be a fireman. There you go. And that's it? Some total, like half of one, yep. basically? I mean, I wouldn't even give it one. It's none of them. None of them. My nephew, my nephew has freshly become a fireman. Congratulations. Yeah, he has the outfit and everything. <laughs> my, I'm going to trump you all in being boring by saying my <laughs> uncle my uncle martin teaches at the fire college in san francisco so all if you become a fireman in san francisco my uncle martin teaches you like the book part oh that's well cool. does he like it thanks that's i wanted to kind of blow your guys's mind it feels like i did i, I mean well, I, you does he like it <laughs> yeah i don't know i, I mean maybe he enjoys he, doing it he's He's been doing it a while, so I think he does. He's he's been doing it a long time. I'm that I've never heard of such a thing as a fire college because uh, I recently I was thinking it would be very important and helpful if there was some kind of a police college. I can't believe that you guys keep calling it police school and police college when the uh, police academy films the entire film oh. series. <laughs> There's six or seven of us them. All that, I that it's called thought it was called school. I mean, school. Mandy, Bobcat Goldthwait is in your book. And you I, thought, I thought that they made the name better, that they didn't actually use the real name. <laughs> I the episode the uh, I believe it was number three citizens on patrol that that's the one that spoke to me the most as a skateboarder because I realized oh. as a teenage skateboarder I could help solve crime by launching a sweet method over the hood of a car. <laughs> <laughs> this, there feels was like all a, this feels like a TV show you pitched. No, it was a, it, it was Tony Hawk and the entire Bones Brigade were in Police Academy three. Tony Hawk Shit. is six uh, four or six five, and he was the stunt person for David Spade, who, no. who I believe is four, you know, five. Well, I don't want to offend the man. He's in his mid five. He's in the mid he'd five admit range. He's petite. I yeah, think he's a petite. He's got jokes about it. Yeah, yeah. He he yeah. would call himself dainty even. I would say that you just did the most perfect segue into talking about Mandy's book. I know. And then we went back to police. I know. Again. I know. <laughs> but well, let's. We should talk about it though, because it is beautiful. I mean, it is a gorgeous book, but it's also Stephen talked about it on our staff meeting this morning. Oh, it's um, nice. It's basically, you know, Mandy uh, 
being a, a comedy show, live show producer in Los Angeles and a, around the globe, but um, but also a photographer, began to take a series of fo- photos at the shows for comics that then most comics began to use all the time and became almost like a um, the it was like the picture, the sepia tone kind of, uh, you know, basically headshot. Yeah. Um, uh, the Mandy Johnson headshot essentially <laughs> that became became no- so well known throughout the biz. Mandy, yeah. Mandy, let me ask you, yes, Karen. <laughs> How did you get the idea that you were like, I'll give comics basically free headshots? I mean, it truly didn't start off as that. And it didn't even start <laughs> off to be a book. It started off as a need to show people, audience members and comedians who has who had done the show and create SEO and drive traffic to the website. And Joel was like, it was basically was our version of like a comedy club wall where comedians mm. sign headshots and then they put them up in frames and they sit there forever and gather gross dust. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm. But it's but my di- favorite thing. <laughs> when I go to a comedy club, it is to look at the wall and see comics that have moved on and become head writers of TV shows or just went off into obscurity. I love. I always look at the comedy club wall in any club and this book is Absolutely. A, a lot of these photos in this book i do recognize from the comics using these photos as yeah. their headshots <laughs> you were yeah, giving away free headshots. free headshots i mean it was definitely like and then when we started in 2010 when we very very first started we couldn't afford to pay and then we got a sponsor about six or seven months in and so then we were able to pay everyone consistently which was something that was always important to me and joel but in the meantime, I was like, well, none of you, all of you need photos. <laughs> so here are some photos for you. I can't pay you, but here are some, you all need photos. I've looked online. You do not have them. Here are some photos. Yeah. And well, because most people tried to get the like $199 set when they were 27. <laughs> yeah. And then just never do it again. And that's definitely what I did. It was just like, get what you get when you, you know, when you absolutely have to and then never look back. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of comics I know that are doing well that still have 15 year old headshots where yeah. of a, a hairline of the past. <laughs> I photograph a lot of comedians' portraits that they'll use for headshots. And a lot of times they'll come in and be like, I haven't done this in like a decade. I'm like, sure, that makes sense. And then they'll tell me, I hate this. And I'm like, you know, if you're successful, this is a thing that you're going to have to do a lot. Yeah. 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 Well, it's awkward. Do you direct while you're taking photo? Like, give me, okay, act like you're, yeah. I mean... A lot of times because I think comedians will come to me because we know each other. And so yeah. we can have we can kind of chat and hang out where I take photos. And so eventually they just relax. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, sure, there's like it's digital now. So there's like 300 photos of them talking that are completely unusable. But right. then there's like, you know, 150 that are great of them having a moment or like in between or, you know, posing more naturally. But it just kind of eventually they get comfortable and they relax into themselves more yeah and then they're just more natural as a whole um but the God, first the time digital, I took, yeah i mean it makes such a huge difference such a so much easier i just i think of when back when i was snowboarding a lot there'd be i uh, uh three or four photographers taking pictures of everyone and you could tell 
who wasn't worried about money because it was in the film days. They'd be just snapping sequence after sequence. And other folks were like, well, I don't want to burn a bunch of film here. Like you had to people used to have to worry about the expense of of developing and then yeah. finding out that you wasted a bunch of shots. It was cheaper to purchase and develop film back then. Yeah. But it still was an actual cost versus just like a one time cost of a memory card, you know? Right, right. And so, yeah, I guess that's the way to now when I shoot film, I never felt like that when I shot film. But now when I shoot film, I feel like that because it's so challenging. And like you have to I send my film out to labs that don't exist that aren't in Los Angeles to get developed uh, because the one in Los Angeles that does like medium format is very expensive. Uh, Deluxe. um, Icon. I just wanted to guess a photo lab (laughs) and see if I could get it right. (laughs) Uh, Icon is the only one that I know that does medium form. Like, there's a lot of great 35 millimeter places, but um, but so I find still... myself kind of like being like, mm, "Is this worth shooting film for?" Right. Do you, did you ever uh, like mess with it, like the actual emulsion process in the in a oh, dark yeah. room and and with I chemicals? Never, I never processed color film, but I grew up. Grew up is a strong word, I guess. But from like high school, middle school, I processed my own form, uh, black and white film for ages. I processed 35 medium format in college. I processed my own four by five film, yeah. which is how the the photos in the book are shot. They're all shot on a four by five camera. Oh, um, OK. Yeah. And that I was kind to... of my cheat to like get around yeah. my nervousness for shooting them, especially early on. I was like, look at this really cool camera. <laughs> <laughs> don't you want to be photographed with this cool ancient camera <laughs> feel like abraham lincoln i'll put a blanket over my head <laughs> yeah. it is pretty amazing though when you look at this book and um and you definitely should and get mandy's book because it isn't um i had no idea how many huge people you got on those sh- on that show and it for that book like as i flipped through it i was just like oh oh my god there's legit big stars in this book um it's really cool Thanks and so it's much. cool because it is i feel like i haven't gone all the way through it but i it seems like it's like specifically about the independent comedy scene in the exact time that i like just starting with how far back did you go is it pre-2000 well i think i think it technically goes back to the 70s oh, wow. i think andy kindler talks about the 70s and <laughs> the timeline um hang on it's dated 1989 i guess is the oldest but i think kindler talks about a little bit before that um but i guess james adomian clocked it where he said i was like born and grew up uh, or he moved there in 89 and that was like the earliest interview oh, okay. specific year I had. But Kindler talks a lot about um, Kindler, Karen, um, Greg, Greg Barrett. Oh, uh, yeah. Greg Barris. Yeah, they all talk a lot about Pardo, about the time that I wasn't in Los right. Angeles yet. So, they, I mean, the time that I didn't spend in the independent scene. I moved here in 2004 and so... I kind of came in right before UCB opened up right. and went to like house party shows and like that happened in garages and stuff. And like, you know, like saw Holy Fuck came and, op- and started doing stuff right before we started Super Serious Show and, and the Comedy Bureau kind of came after us. And 
And then start this, you know, meltdown started happening right after we started Super Serious. And, and then it kind of, you know, I mean, meltdown weekly started happening. Jonah was doing it monthly, but, um, you know, so it kind of, it kind of all culminated, I think, and really took off in like 2010, but in a way that we all knew it pre pandemic, right. you know, we're like tons of bar, like there's a lot of independent, like the independent comedy scene was very vibrant mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, I feel like, and maybe it's most vibrant it's ever been. And, you know, in the city where like there were so many shows and so many ways to see comedy and so many places for comedians to get up comparatively. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure like people would argue that they still had a hard time finding sets and New York still had more sets as a whole or whatever. Maybe but... back then. Yeah. Yeah. That was the brag about New York. Uh, yeah. We moved here around the same time. You pretty much listed every. Yeah. The, the history of my being here. But so, yeah, but so I got a lot of great historical context and things that I kind of knew from like Dana and Karen and that whole gang and like didn't know, you know, and things that I kind of got clarified and stuff along the way in the interviews, which was really interesting for me as somebody who loves comedy and who has produced it for so long and found independent comedy, of course, to be important, as is club comedy, but independent comedy to be important just to give people places and spaces to do stuff. Yeah. I've always tried to do both, and uh, I've I, yeah, I don't even separate the two anymore. I like that they're kind of just becoming the same thing. That was the funny thing in the '90s, because I'm yeah, so I was here probably a decade before you guys, because I moved here in '94, mm-hmm. and it absolutely was the dawn of club comedy versus yeah. what they called alternative comedy, and it was very, which was is just what the era was like just incredibly anti so you it was like you were supposed to pick a team or a side or a type but i had started in clubs because that was essentially all there was because i started in san francisco with greg barrett and uh, a lot of those the people that are in this book and who and everyone migrated down to la because clubs started closing up there and um you know being a club comic was basically it was basically like you were just going to get in line to see if you could eventually get booked and move your way through this kind of pecking order. And then moving to LA, it was like everything broke up and real wide. And it's like, you can go do a show with people who headline at the improv, but it's down at a cafe in your own neighborhood and you can get stage time. You can practice stuff. You can do kind of, you can find your voice before you get ready for this, the finalized, memorized, polished performance, um, which was so cool. It was just the opposite of how I started because it was like my uh, my nervousness when I started stand up was just like you had to be good already, even though, you know, you just started you. My jokes were garbage upon garbage, (laughs) but you just you you were in a club. So you kind of had to meet the standard, basically figure figure it out, you know, do what you can. Um, Whereas down here, it just felt like, yeah, there was much more that concept of experimental comedy or like get on stage and see what's actually funny um, before you take it to the clubs yeah. where, cause it's LA. So people are, it's tourists paying a bunch of money. They want a good show. They want consistent laughter. Yeah. So you can't, you know, I don't know. It was an interesting thing and it was funny that it, tr- they tried to turn it into the, you know, 
the, they tried to turn it into like the civil war where it's yeah. like pick your side and yeah, you're yeah. supposed to hate people and the club comics fucking hated alternative comics yeah. like, it's not funny it's like okay well it's just it was insane yeah it is do you know something i I've, I've never thought of this before this moment but like i remember dana talking to me about like when he started his first independent show with Gene Groffalo, it was because the owner of the improv came up to him when he was trying some new stuff out at like a weekly show, not, not a weekend show, but like a weekly show. I mean, they're still paying plenty yeah. of money for a weekly show, but he was like, these people aren't paying for your experiments. And Dana was like, I don't, I live here. Like I need to work on material before I go on the road. And so he started an independent show at a bookstore with Janine for them to specifically work out material. But having the war between quote unquote alternative and club, where did the quote unquote club comics work out material? Right. I mean, that's just it. <laughs> I've never really well, thought about it because now the worlds are so blended or, you know, pre pandemic, they were so yeah. blended that they could go to like independent right. shows because independent audiences don't care if you're a quote unquote club comic as long as you're not like, I don't know, I guess ending every joke with like, my dick so right. big or something like that. I don't know. Well, that's just, I think but that was, word, that was it, part of the argument was if you only, if like the time that you get on stage to try new stuff, it is in front of 300 people in like the main room, you know, the comedy store main room that you are going to tend toward crowd pleasing material yeah. that might not be the best mm -hmm. material. It might just be clap trappy, um, you know, shock value, whatever yeah. that it's, that it's going to bend your ear toward crowd pleasing ah. as opposed to what's funny what i think's amazing about your story is dana gould i st he was a headliner in san francisco when i started so i've seen i've seen dana do a hundred sets probably and i've never seen him be him trying new stuff was anybody else's perfect polished yes. seven yeah, minutes yeah. so the balls of whoever that motherfucker was who was just like yeah people aren't paying to watch you work stuff out it's like i don't i can't imagine dana being like rough Failing. or even mediocre in any way he is such a constant like he is it, that's just mind-boggling and it's the kind of thing where it's just like that's i think the the um, concepts were too narrow. And I think that idea of just like, what if lots of other things were funny? And what if you could bring something polished that was weird to the stage um, and then get people to laugh at that? Right. You know, God forbid you get these yeah. people's ear to change um, to what they're hearing. So it's not just like, you know, it, it's not just the same rhythm, the same concepts, the same topics all the time. Right. Yeah. And what's, I think, I think what really melded the worlds together was, I think it's been an interesting thing from the aughts to now where Hollywood has, right? Like famously, like so many writers from The Simpsons were found at like Luna Lounge and stuff. And, and what, so Hollywood has been drawn to the independent comedians and in the independent rooms and finding and scouting people through that. And then that, you know, Sarah Silverman and stuff has driven Hollywood material and so then those people get famous on that level and then are able to go and do clubs more freely and then it's like a cyclical thing that feeds itself so that you know Moshe and Natasha or something were in independent rooms only but then as they get famous and rise in a Hollywood standard then they're more acceptable at clubs because club owners are like oh you're famous so you can draw an audience 
and then they do, cl- you know, and it's a very funny, th- it's a very funny thing. Um, like famously, Kristen, I think, just did the improv for the first time, like within the past, like three right. years. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's crazy to me that, you know, it's taken that And long. I was surprised that there was comics I worked with when, or I'm sorry, comedy, comedy, uh, comedy store. Not oh, right. Improv. No, yeah. I immediately just thought the comedy store because that's, that's so many. <laughs> That used to be a scary place that I that was hard to park and I didn't want to go there. And now all my friends are there and it's it's totally changed the environment. But when I would work in Austin, open for these com- like Robert Hawkins was a guy that didn't seem like a road comic. He was really goofy and weird, but he lived in this city. And when I moved here and, of course, contacted him because I didn't know anyone, really. I was so surprised to hear that he. Oh, I just go on the route, the road. I don't really perform in town. Why do you live in Los Angeles? Oh, and, that's crazy. And, and I tried to convince him, and I did, to do UCB one night to do the Comedy Death Ray show because I knew he'd do well because he's, a, a, you know, a bizarre mind. And, and it seemed like he was kind of intimidated by the alternative scene. He's like, I don't think they'll accept me. So it's funny that every both sides to this thing were thinking the same thing. They're yes. not going to accept me as a mainstream comic, and then vice versa. The the working road comics are like. Yeah, meanwhile, that audience couldn't exactly. care. The audience is like, "You are funny." The or audience you're not funny. never has, like, has differentiated. Is, yeah, uh, and that is like the real like line. I think I've watched it happen so many times in like hot tub, where it's a famous comedian. They're working out stuff. And the audience is like, no, that's not funny. And they're like, okay, thank you so much for that honest feedback. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a bit of that. I almost feel like in this city, it's people can smell when you're doing your material. Or, but it, I think it's also like you. We've definitely trained a specific audience that enjoys the process, yeah. which I think is really cool. I don't think that every. Audiences like that, they're, they enjoy watching comedians work out stuff and being yeah. part of it in that way. And I think also, I know that that's challenging sometimes when comedians want to just like go and do a set that's easy yeah. for them and like go and do stuff that they know is going to be good or they want to get a good tape or whatnot. But, um, I think it's cool that the audiences in Los Angeles want to like watch the process because it's not something, I mean, something that I've always yeah. loved, but it's not something that every audience wants, which I think right. is, well, I think that energy of uh the difference between when you're watching somebody kind of like you know shoot for shoot for the moon as they're doing their stuff where it's almost like they're talking over the audience and out into some like the camera of life um (laughs) of like here's my here's the 15 minutes that's gonna you know make or break me as opposed to a person that's kind of on stage and it's it's stylistic, too, because I think that it blended into the style of it seems like this is off the top of your head or it seems like or people that got smart about like, don't save the crowd work for, you know, like you can you can walk on stage and immediately do crowd work. It's actually a very bold move <laughs> and it makes the audience go, oh, shit, they really are like like it. And I think that difference is there are people who are like it's it's the uprising of the comedy nerd because there are people who are like just like I like to laugh and they're sitting there and it's like that's great and they'll never go oh that's I've seen this bit before or this is a very common trope yeah there are people who are just like I'm here to have fun and I don't care you know I don't care what happens but people who follow comedy 
you walk on stage and you get a certain tone in your voice and they immediately are like, Mm-mm. you know yeah. what I mean? So they're, the expectation is I want to see you walk the tightrope a little bit and earn that badge of bravery and improvisation. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like then the UCB-ness of it all started blending together yeah. where it's like, you could do improv, you could do stand up, you could do both. You have all, you can flex all these different ways. Then that makes me think of there's so many shows I've been to where people who clearly are from improv get up to do sets and they fucking eat it so royally <laughs> because they're doing a character. They're doing a character of a comedian. Right. So it's like it's all very kind of insincere and like three feet away. And I feel like the true comedy fan really wants to feel like your heart rate. You know what I mean? Yeah. They want to know you're right there delivering you know fresh new i i just feel like that's maybe that's just my expectation of like no i think you're they right. want you to give them something um new and risky like they want you to risk it yeah yeah what i always tell a lot of times when we have like british comedians you know who come over and do hot temper super serious show they'll kind of ask about the audience and like ask how it's different and stuff and the thing i always tell people and i and I and lots of the times I'm like, I wish somebody had told me this more earlier in America. And it's like such a very simple thing. I was like, in these rooms, you just need to talk to the audience and not at yes. them. Like, and it's I know it's like a mind fuck of a thing because you're like, I am talking to them. But you're like, no, but you're you're talking to that back yeah. wall. You're talking to that invisible camera. You're you're too presentational sometimes, you know, and and they just want you to talk to them. They're there. They're part of the show. They're an integral part of your experience as a comedian and the experience of the show as a whole. And that is the main difference, I think, between a big club room and a big independent room is they just want to be talked yeah. to. Them yeah. Versus and you can room. actually like I taught myself a couple tricks, which is. Definitely make a joke about one of the last jokes the comic before you <laughs> yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, I do it all the time. <laughs> right? You got to do that because then that's saying I'm. I've also been in the audience along with you this yeah. whole time. I know what's going on. And then something about while you're doing your set, which clearly is. I mean, that was also the pain of being a guitar comic. <laughs> There's no way to pretend you're improvising. <laughs> There's no way to pretend you're not doing a polished thing. And also, as you're doing it, you're just stuck inside it. You can't bail. You can't do anything else. You're just like, well, here's my three minute presentation or whatever. It's so painful. It's but funny. I whenever you say guitar comic, I know you as a regular stand up. And then I also know you as a musician. So I, sometimes I would see you do stand up and also play songs. But when I hear guitar comic, I think of parody like goofy songs I know. that rhyme and they're about farting. And I'm in Tulsa and the guy has a cowboy hat. I don't I'd like it if you didn't just call yourself a guitar comic. That, what, but that's if not you what are you, I on guess a comedy show. If you're on a comedy show and you walk out wearing a guitar. Yeah. Yeah. The audience is like <laughs> eh. the audience it, it, in rooms like this. I think if if it was, um, you know, like at the improv, they it's a little show. It's like, oh, it's exciting. I I was I used to it would blow my mind how well those weird little songs would do at a place like the improv because I would be like, oh, I don't think these, you know, these tourists aren't going to like it. And it's like these days and that was, you know, whatever, mid 2000s, everybody has has comedy chops these days. Yeah. Everybody knows comedy. Everybody's it's around so much. It's become so 
kind of ubiquitous in so many different ways that everybody has a little bit of good taste. Obviously, there's like, oh, I like this type of comic or that. But ultimately, I think so many more people these days appreciate like a, a original joke or a well thought out, you know, well planned joke. Like, it's just funny how I feel like I've starting in 1990, you know, and then performing in the 2000s. I feel like the audience has evolved for sure. Well, I think podcast, I mean, did a lot of that. I mean, podcast brought comedians into the space of the fans in the most personal way where they listen to them. I mean, like I listen to podcasts the most when we go on like road trips and we drive a lot. And it's like, oh, I've listened to like eight hours of the dollop or something. And so I just feel like I've been hanging out with Dave and Gareth and like they're, they are my friends, but it, I f- it feels more personal to me. Like they, they've been with me on this road trip, which they yeah. have yes. not been. They have like, I know them and we're friends, but they have not been with me on this road Correct. trip. And so I can imagine for like somebody who doesn't know comedians that that feeling would be the same. And I think that then that evolved the audiences of stand up in a very cool yeah. way where they, became more fandom definitely towards the podcast that they love, but they also had a different relationship with comedy and comedians yeah. and maybe understood them more and understood yeah. where their comedy comes from more and understood who they are as people more, which is something that non common like non-stage comedians, but who exist in comedy like myself, were probably the only people who understood that balance and that lifestyle and that world, you know, pre-podcasts. So it's it's I think it's been a yeah, cool thing. Yeah, the last few years for me, the audiences it uh it's people that kind of know me already and it's become at first I was taken aback by it. Now it's so comforting to know that I'm like safe in front of these sweet people that listen to podcasts. It's the it's the best. I it's am, really nice. You I'm, don't have to you don't have to be like, let me tell you a little something about myself. Yeah. My favorite phrase in the world, let me tell you a little something about myself. <laughs> yeah. I know what you're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I always followed up with just nothing personal and a yeah. joke. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it is the, the, the other funny thing is, and Chris, I think I know you witnessed this happen when April and I did that show at the improv lab. Um, that was at the beginning of my favorite murder and a bunch of, uh, or some of our listeners would come to that. Yeah. But they were podcast listeners. So they were super quiet. Like they yeah. wouldn't even, it was hilarious. The first couple of shows where I would just be like, yeah, you guys, this is a different thing. You're not sitting in your car <laughs> driving to work. Yeah. Yeah. There, you're not going to get trouble in trouble at your desk. If you laugh yes. out loud, but I've gotten used to it. I can tell, I just pay more attention visually to the look on people's faces and I'm okay with it not being uproarious laughter. Actually, yeah, it's a lot of times we when a crowd that- was that hot and they're laughing at everything. I'm like, I don't <laughs> believe you. You're all just drunk and, and trying to be entertained. I had to do uh, what was that? That VH1 stand-up show. <laughs> oh, Rosie O'Donnell hosted it first. Do you remember? You know what I'm talking about, right? Stand-up, stand-up. I believe I, I know. I know what you're talking about. I remember when they shot a stand up show at the Heist House, but I didn't know it was it was and it went on for years. And the audiences knew they were on a TV show. It was like and it was produced for TV and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I got I got booked on it and I was just like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I walked out and I did. I went into the setup of my first joke. And at the end of the first sentence, <laughs> the audience burst out laughing so loud that I like 
didn't I, I like was like whoa and I kind of got shook I was like I don't know what's going on and the and the the audience was just laughing at pauses because they knew they were on TV yeah and it was one of the worst sets and I, I I've almost strictly done terrible television sets um <laughs> early days I by choice by early choice. days yeah um yeah by but that one was mind-blowing because I was just like oh this you guys this isn't about um, my creative mind or these wonderful <laughs> concepts yeah. I'm about to present you. They're just like, I'm we're we live in LA, we're actors, yeah. we're the audience, we're gonna fucking give you audience. So it's just like, ah ha ha yeah. nonsensically. It was it was upsetting. They they was, they reposted my old premium blend, which was 2003, and those they get those audiences. Was, right? Premium blend? Mm -hmm. Uh it it was like a uh, casting service or something and i accidentally mentioned that new york i just said new york and the whole crowd started screaming and hooting and i literally plugged my ears and said no no i didn't oh no my ears i literally plugged my ears and said my ears because i did not expect that to happen it threw me off so much and uh luckily they edited it edited oh my it God. I, did, uh, I think honestly, I think the set I did, if it ended up on the air, which I don't know if it did, but if it did, it was two <laughs> minutes long. Yeah. Oh, they cut it down to nothing because I think because I just kept like flinching <laughs> at yeah. the audience's response. Maybe that's, that's how it's like going to be now. In coming months, people are going to be so excited to see comedy. I'm actually very much looking forward to it, but I I wonder if the audiences will be rusty, just like the comedians. <laughs> I mean, I think that they'll be so excited. Yeah. But it'll still take a really long time before we're going to have full rooms again, I think. Yeah. The audiences will be excited. They'll also be shit faced drunk. Yeah, yeah, you're probably it's, it's right. Gonna a, it's going to be an interesting walk back, I think, into that space and into like them consuming comedy, not from their living rooms again, you yeah. know, and not from. Because yes. like. They can mute themselves and they can talk and do things. And I mean, I think that they'll all be very excited to come back. And I, I truly can't wait to pack the Virgil shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. But I was going to say that like Super Serious Show's audiences have always kind of been like that, where they're like, we call them theatrical audiences. Yeah. Where they would clap and they'd be like, this is funny. I'm quiet now. Yeah. This is yes. funny. I'm quiet now. And so like there's no there's none of the rolling into the things, you know, they they want to like listen so intently yeah. and make sure they don't miss anything. God. They're too polite. Maybe it's something yeah. about the acoustics of that stage or so because I feel like every show no, I do I mean, at the Virgil at hot tub. is <laughs> like that. Hot tub. <laughs> I just I always feel that experience. Yeah. Whenever yeah. I'm I there. I mean, it's. It's an interesting thing. And so I think it's, it's so polite when audiences do that. And they just, they're, they're trying to be differential. They're trying to give what they believe is the right respect to the comedians. Right. And what they don't know is they're like, we just want you to laugh. Like, yeah. that's, that's, that's like laugh or don't laugh. Like we judge everything by your laughter or not your laughter. Like, yeah. you know, it is like the barometer that this show lives and dies by. <laughs> I do like the fact that audiences have developed that understanding about like being quiet and not talking and you know what I mean mm -hmm. that honestly starting in clubs in 1990 yeah. you were just fighting drink noises ch just uh, full-on yeah. conversational chatter at tables um 
I mean, like Nothing you were fighting so much. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was rough. If you were the opener or, you know what I mean? Like lowered or if it was like a showcase yeah. night, it was just a battle. Yeah. So the fact that it is slowly developed into this kind of thing where like the people who are sitting there didn't get free tickets off the radio. They're sitting there because they want to be there and they know right. people on the on the show. Yeah. When someone heckles now, I'm like, did you just step off a time machine? How even <laughs> And the audience, too. They're like, oh, my God, a heckler. He, yeah, they want to look at him. <laughs> I'm also so confused constantly, and I've had it where I've had a few friends who have done this, and I have found I found it really hard, even as somebody who works in comedy, to have this conversation with them. Where I'm like, they're a positive heckler. They're like, yeah. yes. it's like, and I'm like, they don't, they don't need that. They're fine. Yeah, yeah. like laugh. Like yeah. all they want is like, don't tell them they're unless they ask for like a rhetorical yes or something. Yeah. Why are you? They don't need your encouragement. Yeah, just no. the the audience member that's like, uh huh, oh yeah. Or like, I'm with yeah. you. I'm with yeah. you. You're doing great. I'm like, yeah. no. I know you think you're doing such a nice thing, but please yeah. stop positively heckling them. It's really I hard. Know. I don't think they're doing a nice thing. I think they're doing a narcissistic actory thing or a kooky like either they're on something. Yeah, but it's, it's usually like, drunk. That's, that's LA stuff of making it about you where it's just like there's I will always always get (laughs) women who are drunk who are like like because I'll say (laughs) something that they find so you know like I can't believe she said it or whatever where it's just like okay but this isn't about you and your college experience like it's, it's hilarious to me. And it also makes me, I am always very mean to those people because it's just like, just don't do it. Yeah, and also, this, this is my job as a comic. Like, you've now put a target on yeah. your forehead. It doesn't yeah. matter how much you love me because I have to now, if I'm ever going to get on YouTube as comedian who destroys Heckler. Oh, God. I'm going Fingers to crossed. Have to, <laughs> I'm going to have to attempt to destroy I, I one day hope to own a Heckler. Ugh. own them that's yeah. the next level you can destroy I'm so sorry. You can... are you are you discussing like owning a human being that's judging by what all these youtube videos i've seen a lot of <laughs> comedian owns heckler and so i guess oh, it's some sorry I, I, but yeah yeah okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. yeah yeah then they come live at your house and uh <laughs> and, and then uh, i do like this couch it's really comfy yeah they become you your pool boy well? Kind of like Hardcastle and McCormick, a show that I, I shouldn't I have, have referenced. Had, <laughs> I have had to send like Kurt out before and been like, hey, we have a positive heckler in the crowd. So I need you to do a <laughs> yeah. thing where you tell everyone not to heckle, yeah. not to video, like the things. But also explain that like positive heckling is bad, too. OK, thanks. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. Like, Good luck, Kurt. <laughs> this weekend, I'm doing an outdoor jazz festival and I feel uh, so rusty. Uh, that, but it's outdoor. I, I'm actually looking forward to see if there is a band on stage. I'm going to sit in with them and do mouth horn. I'm very excited <laughs> where, about that. Where is this? Where is uh, this? In San Diego. Jazz? go oh and uh is it daytime uh i think it's uh early evening yeah but it's i was told it's outdoor i will be nowhere near anyone just go directly onto a stage and so i agreed to do it and i'm kind of looking forward to it just because i'm so excited to be doing this again but i'm gonna i really want to sit in with an actual brass band and uh like it's gonna be great i mean it's a good mouth horn (laughs) i mean i infamous it's it is it is the opposite of famous it's infamous mandy do you have any uh like 
the best uh the best thing that you ever saw happen at a show or your favorite moment or something along those lines uh having watched what 10,000 hours of stand up comedy like um any of those kind of beautiful live show moments that can only happen at live shows i any think co- that yeah i think that the ones that are always in my memory are the ones that only happen that one time that and it could be Rory doing an all improvised set. It could be a, a crowd work moment with Andy Peters where somebody <laughs> breaks the glass and then it like leads him onto a weird train where he's like interviewing the person and then like has bits about their life. But it could also be like Dimitri Martin going, saying a new one liner for the first time and seeing it doesn't work and then commenting on the audience reaction to it. Like all of that stuff that is like irreplaceable and non rep, like you can't repeat it. Yeah. Right. Is so precious, I think, to me in comedy. That's the thing that I think I realized early on as somebody who consumed comedy. And then when I started producing it, I think when you think back to your favorite memories, it's like, and it's like even like sometimes Karen, it's like the little in-betweens you used to have in your songs, you know, like those weren't rehearsed and those were really off the cuff. And like you kind of commenting on the audience or like talking about the room or the space or like, yeah. you know, a, a drunk woman coming up to stage at South by Southwest to talk to Baron about like something that upset her, you know, yeah. <laughs> with security closing in because yeah. we weren't sure exactly what she was going to do. <laughs> but it's all those like moments that wouldn't won't ever happen again yeah 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 and i love it when an, they're so i love it when an audience recognizes it as a once in a lifetime moment and then they clap they recognize it well we've been <laughs> laughing let's clap for that because that was yeah. a moment in time i yes. love that moment where they decide to clap instead of because they're acknowledging <laughs> that it was oh an artistic moment just happened <laughs> the mm-hmm. best feeling i miss it I and then it. when you like you talk to people like I remember the first like high planes that we went to like Reggie had a big you know closing set that was very fun but it's also the highest I've ever seen Reggie ever like ever and I talked to Kurt about it all the time <laughs> because I'm like do you remember that one set when Reggie was like he was like so high you know and so like you can then <laughs> have that moment with that person or those people that were with you that nobody else will really ever be able to experience because they weren't there. And it's, you can explain it to them and you can tell them and they can kind of conceptually understand it, especially if they're in comedy a lot. But it's something that's just, it's just so special when it happens and it's just mm-hmm. there and it's live. And I think that that's what a lot of times when you film comedy and you cut a 10 minute set down to two minutes or a seven minute set down to two minutes for a TV show, and then the people who watch it are like, oh, this is so like stunted and like stiff. Yeah. It's like, cause that's not their real set. That's not yeah. their real thing. You know, it's like, it's inauthentic to the comedian. It's not a good representation of who they are on stage. And, right. and you know, it's like the, the best version of it that's been recorded is like Jimmy Pardo's crowd work album, which I don't know if you've ever, I could like listen to that over and over and over again. It's like, I don't even think he meant like he was recording an album, but he just did crowd work for an hour and it was, so funny oh yeah He's and it was un- just unbelievable per- but it was just like perfect in the way of cap capturing that energy yeah. that's so hard to capture on film and in an album and in a way that feels real and not staged you know right. I, that it just made me think that i 
if I had to pick someone for that, I most of the time it's been memories of watching Andy Kindler because when <laughs> Andy starts eating it, like there's nothing, there's a dynamic Andy brings out where the comedians can't stop laughing because the audience is not laughing and Andy is. <laughs> Um, reading off his index cards and then getting mad and then having and then getting really funny. But the uh, he's he loses the audience. He gets them back. He loses them again. Like the 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 journey, the, the journey and the dynamism <laughs> of his performances are have always been so amazing that to me, that's it's those comics that are like, I think he's one of those people that defies all of that. He's a club comic. He's an alternative comic. He can do everything because every time he's on stage, he's absolutely like, well, Smoopy, why, why didn't you like that joke? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's constantly confronting the audience about what they are or are not doing. It's just, yeah. Yeah, I miss, he's. I miss live performance so much. He is a comic. He acknowledges every moment as it's happening. I've every never, moment. And uh, yeah, he's the only person where I'm like watching him and I'm thinking, God, he's a genius. While simultaneously the audience is a little confused. This is the way he deals with that. Is, yes. Oh, it's my favorite. He and is a he comics, like, comic. He gives, the he gives the audience the opportunity to judge and dismiss him. And it's <laughs> like he's like, because some of his jokes are incredibly corny, but they're usually the kind of current event ones. Like, yeah. when, and then he's, but then he just starts riffing through those cards. It is just like, it's that kind of thing where you're watching the audience think they're the expert when actually the expert is in charge. Like the expert is doing it on yeah. purpose. Yeah. It's just, I remember. Yeah. I remember in like late Obama years, he would do hot tub and the audience that hot tub is very progressive. I would say that they were, you know, as a whole Bernie supporters. You yeah. Know? If you had to like, you know, paint them with one brush. Um, but so he would, say something positive about Obama and the audience would be like, no, we don't know <laughs> where he's not progressive enough for us. And it would kind of catch Andy off guard because he'd be like, oh, this is going to be a thing that's going to be fine. And then it wouldn't. And watching him recoup from that while commenting on recouping from that while commenting on how he thought it was safe while commenting on how we thought it was yeah. so progressive <laughs> was such a very funny like loop of yeah. information. Yeah. And then it would eventually break the audience, you know, yeah. and like watching that moment when the audience finally gets on board with yeah. it is so perfect yeah, yeah that's a really good way of putting it stacking comment about uh, bu uh, <laughs> commenting on the comment on the comment it's the yes. best until they're finally like okay you got us now we know <laughs> now we understand we've just learned something thank you it is like kind of like taming a wild horse i remember the very first i think when we started hot sub kurt and kristen were there for like the first year and a half like straight and that has never ever happened again but and then the very first guest host we had was Sean Patton. And he had to like, it was like breaking a horse. He had to like go into the audience. He had to work so hard. And when he finally broke them and got them on board, because they were just mad that Kurt and Kristen weren't there, right? They were like, mm, how dare you? Not <laughs> this isn't Kristen. my favorite horsey. <laughs> mm. Yeah. But when he finally broke them, then he started the show. And it was such a magical thing to watch yeah. a comedian be like, no, 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 you're going to get on board with me. We're going to have fun tonight. I don't care what it costs. I will stand up here and say brown <laughs> butter baby until I'm blue in the face. <laughs> That's the best. 
it's so funny that I thought before this that you had done the podcast with Joel, but I just, because I love going to the airport, one time I was picking up <laughs> Nate and Nate Craig had flown with you or something or ran into you at the airport and I... I did pick you up. I did drive you home, but we just weren't recording. <laughs> we weren't recording. No, no, no. It was just me. And I wasn't there. God and you weren't you. there. Yeah. All these I was, little. I definitely do not remember being in a car from the airport with Karen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was just me. It was. But in my mind, I was like, "Oh yeah, I remember I mean, vividly." That makes sense. You get getting... all. We all used to live on the same side of town. You moved. But... Yeah, I did. I moved. Uh, moved to the old Echo Park area, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm no longer near that airport, and I don't miss it. Karen and I, neither of us miss the airport. We oddly. really don't miss driving to Los Angeles you would International Airport. All the time. a lot of where you guys were taking people, right, for the yeah. Oh, yeah. You can't fly out of Burbank usually, unless you are a, a millionaire. Yeah, we yeah, quickly... Yeah, are so much more. So much more. Yeah. So much more. Um, Mandy, <laughs> do you have anything to plug? Anything... Yeah. Anything... At Besides all. the book, I do want to plug the Airbnb I'm at. I'm, I'm staying, and I know listeners, you can't see this, but <laughs> I'm staying in this very beautiful Airbnb that is Abby Launders. That is Moonridge Cottage on Airbnb. It's up in Big Bear, and Ooh. it's beautiful. It's a three-bedroom, two-bath, and it is lovely, and it's wow. very cozy and comfortable, and I just think that anybody who's up in this area should stay here. I'll stay yes. there, Moonridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, she is a dear friend of mine, but it's also the first Airbnb I've ever stayed in where I'm like, oh, I kind of feel at home. Yeah. Like, oh, nice. You know, sometimes they have those uncomfortable couches or like yeah. the furniture is just kind of weird. You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> yeah. like not yeah. quite right. This one, I actually like, I'm like, oh, this feels like I would live here. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you're plugging an Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> you're supposed to be a producer. Where? And I want to plug my book. Yeah, Super where do you, uh, where do people get the book? Anywhere. Anywhere books are sold, super serious, an oral history of independent stand-up comedy in Los Angeles. And we're still doing Hot Sub Home Edition, which you can find us on YouTube. Cool. And the easiest way is to go to our Instagram, Twitter, and just click on the link tree, and it'll take you right to the place to watch us. And that's every Monday night at 8 p.m. Pacific. That's terrific. And you can see awesome. me doing mouth horn at a series of outdoor jazz festivals. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just one. Are you going to plug the one you're oh. upcomer? This will be, be back. It's tomorrow, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm talking about something from the past. A, a oh. classic podcast mistake. <laughs> you know what, Chris? When we come back to live shows, I'll, I'll book you, but just for Mouthhorn. Oh, I, I, hey, it, I, a challenge accepted. Thank you. You could be, Chris could be the opening act, Mouthhorn behind a mask. Oh, yeah. And you just kind of set that tone. Set I hope you box. guys like Mangione. <laughs> <laughs> but really muted. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Mandy, thank you so much for being here with yeah, us. Yeah, thank you so you much. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, I'm sorry that I thought you'd been on before. My memories <laughs> get crossed. You know, it's, it's love. I've done more podcasts than ever in my whole life, and... They've been all nerve-wracking and terrifying, but also very fun because I'm just talking to friends. Yeah. yeah. It's just a hangout. Yeah. That's all. Let's pretend yeah. we were just at a party. Yeah. <laughs> Karen, when parties come back, I am still going to come and cook for yours. Oh, oh please, good. And yeah. I'm coming. Because we made I'm... that plan. Yes, we did. In February. <laughs> 
I, February of 2019. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm That's- 2020. <laughs> Did we do it like directly before? Yeah, I remember I came over. I made that uh, tomato galette. Yo, and yeah. we had dinner and yes. you were like, I'm going to do monthly parties. And I was yep. like, I want to cook for them. And then like, and you were like, great, we'll plan one for March. And then like two weeks later, we were like, <laughs> I guess that's I didn't never realize happening. that was like, I didn't realize that was in, in February. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, what a year. Then I was just like, see you later. I won't be answering your texts for the next year. I was like, do you have year. enough food? I know you have all those daily harvests. <laughs> <laughs> we can just blend up a couple daily harvests and give those out. I was like, do you have enough food to eat, Karen? <laughs> It's just me checking all my friends. Are you going to starve to death? Thanks for having us. Thank you, Mandy. Absolutely. Great to see you. Great to talk to you. You've been listening to Do You Need a Ride? D-Y-N. A-R. hear that horn? Oh, boy. Oh, my God. Oh, God. That's that's nice. That's good. That's good. (laughs) Are you leaving or are you on your way back home? Either way, we want to be. Doesn't matter how much baggage you claim Give us a time and date Terminal and gate We wanna send you off in style We wanna welcome you back home Tell us all about it Were you scared or was it fine? Mouth horn Uh, with Karen and Chris.